Well, it's good to be back in Exodus 32. Um, I really appreciated Josh's sermon last week. Um, I wish I could, I wish he was here. I'm sure he's working. It was encouraging to me how in God's providence, he often dovetails things together. And, and I know um, a lot of what I said was dovetailed in what he said, and I hope you were encouraged as well. Um, today, we're continuing, continuing our look at the golden calf incident in Exodus 32. If you remember, I said two weeks ago that Paul, by referencing the golden calf incident in his uh, exposition of idolatry in Romans chapter 1, perhaps the, the most um, detailed analysis, if you will, of what idolatry is and how it functions, by referencing the golden calf incident as he does so, and in many ways making it kind of a controlling motif, he tells us then that the golden calf incident is really paradigmatic of idolatry itself, of its nature. Um, I I said last, well, not last week, two weeks ago, if you want to see a play-by-play analysis, the anatomy of idolatry, you don't have to look any further than Exodus 32 and the golden calf incident. According to Paul, what happens there is not just a picture, not just a foretaste and preview of Israel's history, which it surely is that, sadly, but for Paul, it's much bigger than that. It's a picture of what happens in the human heart ever since the fall, which began with Adam and has taken place ever since. What happened thousands of years ago at the base of Mount Sinai is a picture of what's been going on inside our own hearts. Furthermore, I said to you that for us, even though we have been freed, praise God, from the curse of the law, um, the wrath of God can no longer fall on us. Furthermore, we've been born again. Sin no longer has dominion over us. We are no longer said to be uh, slaves of sin. So in that sense, we are no longer enslaved to idols anymore. Nevertheless, because there still remains some sin indwelling within us. That means that as we examine Exodus 32, we can't just look at it and say, well, that was me before Christ, and I I thank God He's delivered me from that. That's true. Certainly was us before Christ entirely. It's no longer us entirely. But it's still very true that what happened thousands of years ago at the base of Mount Sinai is a picture of what still takes place in our hearts, even perhaps today before we came to church, even perhaps as you're sitting here. As you know, there's some idols in your own heart that need to be uprooted. This is still very much applicable. What we're going to continue to do then is what I said we would do two weeks ago, namely to consider the evil, the wickedness, the pain the tragedy of idolatry, that we might take heed. Not only that we might be watchful against future occurrences of idolatry in our own hearts, but that in case any of us sit here today knowing there are idols in our heart, perhaps even lamenting it, but not doing anything about it, that we might awaken. I've known many Christians who at times lament that they have an idol in their heart. 
and yet they do no more than lament. As Eli said to his son, so they say to themselves, why do you do such things? And yet it never goes farther. It's my hope that as we study this, it would awaken us with a holy fear and a holy repentance. I need not only lament my idolatry, I need mortify it. I want to do that today. As Paul said in reference to the golden calf incident, also the wilderness years, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. I pray as we continue to look this week and the next and even the next, um, we would heed the instruction in the Word of God here. Now, as far as today specifically, if you've already looked at the order of service, perhaps you can anticipate where I'm going to go uh, by seeing my sermon title. I've entitled it, The Exchange of Glory. The Exchange of Glory. What I want us to ask, and Lord willing, find answers to today, is how is what we read in verses 1 through 4, how and in what way is that an exchange of glory? And what does that mean? What prompted the psalmist when he wrote Psalm 106 in verses 19 through 20 to look at these events and describe it as an exchange of glory? On the one hand, I'm sure you're thinking, well, it's kind of obvious, Pastor, they're exchanging God's glory with an idol. And I agree that it's kind of obvious. But there's still more there that we can get out of that. Um, there's still more that we can take away. And really what we want to see, how is what takes place in our own heart an exchange of the glory of Christ? What does that mean? What does that look like? Why is that a tragedy? Why should that horrify us? And how can we avoid it? By God's grace, that is what we will do in our short time today. So let's dive again into our text. I do just, just for clarity's sake, want to read it one more time. Um, I'm going to spend a lot of my time actually outside of our own passage, interacting with other interpretations of it in Scripture. So let's read it one more time, verses 1 through 4. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain... People gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool, and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. First, let's just note a few kind of basic things, but also things we don't want to just pass over. Note that really what we see here is not just the creation of an idol. It's really a wholesale replacement uh, of true religion with a false religion. It's kind of interesting to read chapter 32, verses 1 through 4, and even 5 we'll see, after we've been reading about true religion being described in, in the tabernacle, um, it's all of its elements, and in, in, in how the priests were to go about their business. We kind of read all of that, and then we come to Exodus 32, 
And there's kind of these very interesting parallels between these two, this new false religion. First of all, we have a different God, clearly, uh, a golden calf. I, I've told you that a calf, the imagery of calves, or really a young bull, is very common in ancient Near Eastern idolatry. Um, should also note it, it was very big as well in Egyptian idolatry, and so part of this uh, is definitely connected most likely to their time in Egypt. It may be very likely that some of them were idolaters in whatever that pagan religion of uh, bull worship was. It's, it's the name of some Egyptian god. Um, so not only do we have a new god, but Aaron, who really should have been the high priest of true religion serving Yahweh, is essentially now a pagan high priest of a false religion. It goes on to explain in verse 5 that Aaron built an altar and then established a feast day. This is much more than just making an idol. It's a wholesale replacement of true religion with false. And though in some ways, though, Aaron still tries to maintain the veneer of orthodoxy. You know, in verse 4, not only does he say, or actually they say this, um, these are the gods who brought you up out of Egypt. That is an incredibly blindly brazen insult to God. Why? Well, think about it. Um, and that phrase actually appears again and again throughout Exodus 32, and I, I think it's intentionally. Why? How does the Decalogue start? It doesn't just say, you shall have no other gods before me. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Then it goes on to say, you shall not make a graven image. Israel, in having other gods and making graven images, twists the very language of the Decalogue meant to be a motivation that they not do those things and now uses it to support their own actions. It's, it's like step away from them, the lightning's about to hit, Right? Now, if that were not bad enough, it says in verse 5, they establish a feast day, but it's not just any feast day. Listen to what Aaron says. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. To the Lord. In your Bibles, Lord there is most likely capitalized, L-O-R-D. At other times, uh, when you see L-O-R-D or G-O-D capitalized. In Hebrew, it's Yahweh or Jehovah as it used to be said. That's incredibly blasphemous. Notice what Aaron's doing. It's not enough for him to say, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt, but he says, oh yeah, and we're still worshiping Yahweh. Don't worry, this, we're not breaking the Ten Commandments. He did bring us out of Egypt. This is him. These are the gods who brought us out. This is Yahweh. So it's very brazen what's happening. Now, I'll just note two things before we get back to our kind of main topic of the exchanging of glory. First, as we'll see next week, just note here, but we'll see more, how idolatry darkens the mind. So often in the Bible, worshiping idols and being a fool go hand in hand. 
In fact, in Romans chapter 1, as Paul expounds the nature of idolatry, he's also basically inveighing against, uh, is that the right word? Giving invectives um, against fallen humanity that they are fools for their idolatry. And we see a taste of that here. The, the utter foolishness to say, this is the gods who brought you out of Egypt, Israel, right? And it just doesn't occur to him how, as John Gill says, monstrously stupid that is. That's how we're, that's, we'll see he says that later. It's great. That's the first thing to notice. The second thing to notice, and it's just a tiny thing, but commentators notice this, and, and I, I, think it's, I think it's so applicable. It's this. Whenever true religion is being subverted, brothers and sisters, whenever there is corruption of biblical doctrine, those who are doing the subverting in order to lead others astray will clothe themselves with the robes of orthodoxy. They will try to use the language of orthodoxy, though in reality it's a whole new religion they're establishing. On my uh, long Long, 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 long drive down to Willis, like three and a half hours, um, just north of Houston for the meeting. I listened to a lecture about Spurgeon and the downgrade controversy. If you've never heard that, um, the downgrade controversy refers to the inroads that theological liberalism and uh, German higher criticism of the Bible had began to make even in the Baptist Union of England at that time, where people were denying the inspiration of Scripture, the deity of Christ, the atonement, all kinds of things, and Spurgeon called it a downgrade. It's, we're, it's, we're sliding down, right? Listen to what he says, and keep this in, as I heard this, listen to what he says, and keep in mind what Aaron and the people do with the golden calf incident, Okay? A new religion has been initiated, which is no more Christianity than chalk is cheese. And this religion, being destitute of moral honesty, palms itself off as the old faith with slight improvements. It's exactly what we have here. This isn't something else besides Yahweh. This is Yahweh 2.0, new and improved. Now you can see him, right? Now we're just like everybody else. That's a little thing, but I think it's so important to keep in mind because the devil's tactics have never changed. Those who so often seek to take everything good out of the gospel will call you brother and use the language of orthodoxy that ultimately they might take away everything good that they have from you. That's what happens here, sadly. Just a tiny little note. Um, I thought that was so cool, and then I heard the Spurgeon quote, and it's so great. It's no more Christianity than chalk is cheese. This is no more the religion of true worship in Exodus 32 than chalk is cheese, we could say, all right? Great sermon title. Well, now let's ask the main questions that we set out to ask, namely, how is this an exchange of glory? What does that mean how should we understand that most fully? Perhaps we understand it on a simple level. How should we understand that fully? Turn with me to Psalm 106.
Psalm 106, verses 19 through 20. We'll see this this language of exchanging glory gets picked up elsewhere. It's also used by Jeremiah in interesting ways, um, but I think this is the first instance of it. Psalm 106, verses 19 through 20. They made a calf in Horeb, another name for Mount Sinai, and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. Notice then simply because of the, the parallelism structure of this, this is Hebrew poetry, notice that the making and worshiping of the golden, in the golden, of the golden calf is parallel to the exchanging of glory. Glory is exchanged in that, kind of seems obvious. What exactly does that mean? I think on the most basic level, on the one hand, it's a reference to God's glorious presence manifested amongst Israel in their true worship of Him. We sang in our first psalm, uh, our opening psalm today, the psalmist, actually David says, in your habitation I have beheld your glory. Throughout Israel, and I think sometimes we miss this when we think about the temple and the tabernacle, when God was there, there was a visible glorious manifestation of his glory, (laughs) splendid manifestation of his glory. It's interesting that in the rest of Exodus, really Scripture, God's glory is very much tied to true worship. For example, at the end of the book of Exodus, everything is finally complete in terms of uh, the tabernacle, the garments, the priests are all ready to go, or they will be shortly. And then what happens? the Lord descends in glory. We're told Exodus 40, 33 through 35, and Moses erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That is what Israel missed out on. That is what they rejected by rejecting the true worship of God. They could have had what no other nation on earth had, an actual visible manifestation of God's glorious presence, His covenant presence with them. What did they do? They exchanged that for what every other nation had. Images made of wood, gold, silver, making it idols, but which are no gods at all. Now, how how then, let us ask, is this an unspeakable tragedy? Let's think of it that way. How is this an unspeakable tragedy? In many ways, it's obvious, right? It's obvious in the sense that the Holocaust was an unspeakable tragedy. How much time do you have? Of course, this is a lamentable tragedy. Uh, thing to weep over that happens here. But let's think through this a bit more. I think it will, it will help us to further take heed. It is an unf- unfathomable tragedy because God's glory and nature are unfathomably beautiful and infinitely precious and majestic beyond all comprehension. You know, on the one hand, this was quite literally true of 
the visible manifestation of the glory of God. Um, I don't just think it was bright light. I don't know what exactly it was. The way the, the, that God's glory is described at times, it, it's like, I imagine it's something we haven't seen at any time in our life so far. Um, it overcomes people. It overwhelms them. I don't know a light so bright that is basically unapproachable. Moses can't enter the tabernacle because the glory of the Lord fills it. I don't know what that means. The priests, when Solomon's temple is consecrated, they can't go into it because the glory of the Lord has filled it. It overwhelms people. It pushes them away. That's much more than light. Sometimes it's described paradoxically as unapproachable light and thick darkness. I don't know how those two go together. Furthermore, it's transformative, his glory. When Moses, later on in Exodus, when he comes down from the mountain again, he doesn't just have a sunburn. He's glowing. I don't know any other light except for something radioactive, I don't know, that makes you glow as well. That's God's beautiful glory, and that was on display for Israel to see, and no other nation had that. To behold his visible manifestation of his glorious presence. To be sure, the golden image had some glory to it. Gold has glory. There's a thing called gold fever. If you've ever been to a, a place, I remember one time we were on vacation in Alaska, and we got to pan for gold, I think, right? Do you remember that? We weren't going to find any nuggets. I don't know what we were going to find, but even then, I, I felt gold fever inside me. It's like, oh, I could find a flake, right? Gold has some glory. Idols have some glory. It's nothing compared to the glory of God. And that glory is what they exchanged. Furthermore, God's glory, uh, in terms of what they exchanged, was not, not solely just His visible manifestation but really just God himself in all his fullness, his nature, his attributes, who he is, even those invisible things that aren't visibly manifested in Israel, that's all still part of his glory. It's very interesting. When Paul takes Psalm 106, verse 20, they exchange the glory of God, he adds a word. It's very interesting. You should always note when apostles do that. He adds the word immortal in Romans 1.23. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God. We'll see why he did that. I think he's actually commenting on the passage itself. But immortal there could be translated imperishable, incorruptible, that which does not fade. It's the glory of a creator instead of the creature. This is why he says in Romans 1.25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Instead of the blessed creator who exists of himself and calls other things into existence and sustains them by his word, 
Instead of worshiping him, they worship the creature, the things who have no existence apart from God speaking them. It's interesting, in Psalm 106, let's look there real quick, Psalm 106, verse 19, there's a little phrase that you almost pass over quickly without taking too much, too much note of it. It's very important. It's a very profound statement. Um, Psalm 106, verse 19. I passed over this a ton of times until I read something in a commentary. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. Now, why would the psalmist say that? He could have just said, they exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox. But he adds, that eats grass. Are you thinking, Pastor, your much learning has driven you crazy? No, no. I think it's actually profound what he's saying. I think this is why Paul uses the word immortal. Listen to what John Gill says. He says, This was monstrous stupidity to leave the worship of the true God, El Shaddai, God all-sufficient, all-powerful, that stands in need of nothing, but upholds and supports all creatures in being and provides for their needs, and worship an ox, indeed the figure of one who eats grass, who lives on hay, and is supported by that which is so weak and withering. I think that's why Paul says, he puts the word immortal there because he's picking up on the fact that the psalmist is highlighting, you are worshiping a mortal animal that survives on mortal grass. Grass all throughout Scripture um, is a picture of transiency. It's a picture uh, of, of something fading, something perishable, something that does not even last the heat of the day. Isaiah 46 through 7, all flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The ox eats grass and I think in the psalmist he's kind of saying that's a picture of even the fadingness of what they're worshiping, and they're exchanging that for the worship of the immortal, imperishable, incorruptible God. By contrast to that, our God is immortal, infinite, all-powerful, self-sufficient, and He made Himself known to Israel. Gill says, God who is glorious in all the perfections of his nature and his glory itself and was the glory of these people, it was their greatest honor that they had knowledge of him, nearness to him, the true worship of him among them and that they were worshipers of him. And they threw it all away for something that eats grass, for something you can kill and eat for something that gives you life like that. They threw it away. Brothers and sisters, when we turn aside to idols, we are turning aside and exchanging the glory of the immortal, self-sufficient, infinite, 
all-glorious, as many adjectives as you want to add, God, turning it in for trash, dung. This is why Paul says in Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, my Lord. For I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as dung, in order that I may gain Christ. Oh, Christian, don't turn aside from the surpassing worth of knowing the glorious Christ. Don't let your heart deceive you. Idols will do that. They'll tell you, no, I have some glory. I have some great glory. And our hearts are deceived and led astray. And then you take, take a bite to find out, this is rubbish. I let go of the true thing. There are many good gifts in this world, brothers and sisters. Many good gifts from God. They are vile substitutes for God. This is what John Owen says. Look unto the things of this world. Wives children, possessions, estates, power, friends, and honor. How lovely are they? How desirable unto the thoughts of most men. But he who has obtained a view of the glory of Christ will in the midst of them all say, there is none on earth that I desire besides thee, or who in the heaven can can be compared unto the Lord. You know, this last week I told, <clears throat> I told Annika something that made her say, aww, it hit her in the feels, as, as the young ones say. I, I, used, I knew a pastor who used to say to his wife, before I was married, life was in black and white, and now it's in color. And I used to say that to Annika, and then I was thinking about children, and I was like, well, that's true of getting married. And I was like, but when you add kids the colors get brighter, and they become more vibrant the more children you asked. And I, I shared this with Anika, and she goes like, oh, you have a heart and feelings after all? Um, and it's true, though, isn't it? There are many good, good things that God has given us in this life that add color and richness Fat and rich food, as David said. They're nothing compared to the beautiful colors that Christ can cause to shine upon our hearts. When you see those colors, that other stuff is, it's not even black and white, it's darkness. The glory of Christ is so great, so precious, so beautiful. You could have all those other things, but if you don't have that, You've missed the big thing. It's interesting. Israel will realize this in Exodus 32. You remember I said, uh, we often think of the phrase, or sometimes you hear of the phrase, when, when Moses says, show me your glory. He says that to God. Sometimes we think, well, maybe Moses is being speculative here. He's not. He's looking for reassurance that God's glorious presence will go with him. Because in Exodus 33, God says, you guys go up. I'm basically going to give you the land. I'm going to defeat your enemies. All good, but I'm not going to go with you. 
My presence, my glory will not go up with you. And Moses pleads and says, Lord, you said your presence would come up with me. Show me your glory. Let me have assurance that it will go up with me. And it's interesting because God is going to give them everything that he originally promised, but he said, I myself will not go. And they realize that that is a disastrous monstrosity. Look with me. Uh, Turn with me to Exodus 33 of Exodus. Exodus 33 of Exodus. Chapter 33 of Exodus. It's really interesting. I'd, I'd never noticed this before. Verses, uh, well, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, I like how he talks that way, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, And I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. Note, That is a disastrous word to them. It leads them to mourn. God is still going to do basically everything he promised to originally do for them. He's going to bring them up into the good land, the land flowing with milk and honey, a life of richness and abundance. He's going to send an angel, not his angel. It won't be his angel because he says, my presence won't go up with you and his angel is associated with his presence. This is an angel, a created angel. He's going to send an angel who will give them victory over their enemies. It's all sounding pretty good, but it's disastrous. Why? Because if you take God out of the equation, the land of milk and honey is not a land of milk and honey. If you take God out of the equation, though you have a life of abundance... Though all your enemies should be subdued so that it's full of peace and you have everything you, that your heart could desire, yet if God be missing, what's the point? Those things are just a foretaste of the goodness of God. I like uh, Legan Duncan's comment on this passage. Uh, I'll, I'll read to you what he says. Consider this. He says, I want to ask you a question. If God dangled that proposition in front of you, how would you respond? I'll give you everything you want. I'll give you joy in this life. I'll give you happiness in this life. I'll give you a good marriage. I'll give you a good career. I'll give you wonderful children. I'll give you power. I'll give you glory. I'll give you influence. I'll give you a lasting legacy. I'll even give you heaven in the hereafter, but you can't have my presence. How many people today would love that bargain? It's true. Let me ask you a question. If we have God's presence, which we surely do, we sang two weeks ago, great is thy faithfulness. 
and we spoke of thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. We have God's presence to cheer us on our way, on the way to heaven, and to guide us on our way. He indwells us through the Holy Spirit. If we have the one thing you need to have, without which everything is disastrous, if we have His presence, why do we mourn and pine over the milk and honey of this life when we don't have that if we already have the presence of God? Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying there's not a time to mourn in this life or that it's even unrighteous to mourn. Christ mourned when Lazarus died. That's not the kind of mourning I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of mourning of the loss of not having the worldly good things, the good milk and honey, not having your enemies subdued before you. If you have God's presence with you, why do you mourn as though you didn't? I would suggest to you, brothers and sisters, that the degree to which you mourn and pine over those things is the degree to which they have become your God. What's sad is they cannot actually satisfy. I'm sure you're all familiar with uh, Jeremiah 2.13. Maybe not the citation, but the wording. When I read it, you'll probably be familiar with it. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Have you ever heard that? It's pretty common. It's a very powerful imagery, right? Note what goes before it. Verse 11. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. In other words, broken cisterns which cannot hold water. They exchange in the place of the fountain of living waters. Notice God doesn't just say, I'm a cistern that holds water. A cistern just collects water. It collects rainwater, right? These are bad cisterns because they can't even hold water. God isn't saying, I'm a good cistern. He's not just a cistern. He's the source of water himself. They forsook the source of water for broken cisterns. Brothers and sisters, when we pine after those things, when we go about mourning because we don't have them, Oh, we're mourning over a broken cistern. Turn aside to the living waters that are freely available for you to drink and satisfy your soul such that David, when he... Think about this. Is, is David, when he's in this, the wilderness of Judah, he's in the wilderness. He's not, he's not surrounded by milk and honey. His enemies are pursuing him. We can't really have that particular promise, I will send my angels to subdue your enemies. He's kind of not experiencing any of the covenantal blessings that he should be experiencing. And yet he is feasting. His soul is overflowing on fat and rich food. Why? Because he's not trusting in broken cisterns. He's drinking from the fountain of living water, which is God. In closing... Told you it's going to be short. Tell Josh, Ryan actually did it. I never, I've never seen it happen. 
In closing, let me give you some encouragement. Be encouraged, Christian, first of all. Though your heart may be the proverbial idol factory, as John Calvin said, though even today as you sit here, perhaps there are some deep-rooted idols. You've tried to pluck them out of your heart, and you're, you're just not getting success yet. Be encouraged. Why? Because God will never remove His glorious presence from you. You may try to exchange it, but in the end, you will not be able to. You are destined for glory. You will be guided there safely one day, whether you try to sell it or not. You can't, because Christ purchased it for you. It will never be said of you, go up lest I consume you because of your sinfulness. Because God already consumed His Son on the cross in your place. Consumed him with his wrath, as we read in 2 Corinthians 5, I think it was 5, right? He made him who knew no sin to be sin. We are reconciled. His presence will never depart. Let that encourage you. His glorious, beautiful presence, his covenantal presence, his transforming, sanctifying presence shall never depart from you. All the more, therefore, try to pluck those idols out of your heart. Second, if you would be rid of certain idols in your heart, perhaps you've been battling for a long time, the best way to do that is to delight yourself in the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. It's not enough to to say, I'm going to go on an idol diet. I'm going to cut back on idolatry this week. I'm looking to lose a couple idle pounds. I got a little big over Christmas. I gained a little pudge. I need to cut down on my idol consumption. That's not how you kill idols. You kill idols by glutting yourself, satisfying yourself, drinking till you are gorged full of the satisfying glory of Jesus Christ, the fountain of living waters. When you taste that, that other stuff is rubbish. You abhor it because it's not the good stuff. That's really how you kill idols. Yeah, you do cut down. You pluck out eyes. You cut off hands. You do that, but that's not enough. You must satisfy yourself with the sight of Christ's glory. If you would free your hearts then from idols and keep your your hearts free from idols, cry out to the Lord. Lord, enlighten the eyes of my heart more and more to see the glory of Christ. And perhaps you say, Pastor, I've been trying that. I've been trying that. And still when sin comes, it dazzles my stupid heart and I go after sin again for the millionth time. I've been trying to see more of the glory of Christ and I just haven't. What do I do? John Owen says this is what we are to do when our hearts are little affected by Christ, not moved. Um, Christ does not appear glorious to our hearts. This is what we do. Our duty in this case is expressed by the spouse in the Song of Solomon, the Shulamite. When she says, By night on my bed I sought him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. 
I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the broad ways. I will seek him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. The watchmen that go about the city found me, to whom I said, Have you seen him whom my soul loveth? It was but a little while that I passed from them, but I found him whom my soul loveth. I held him and would not let him go. Owen says, This is the substance of what we are instructed to do. To persevere in our inquiries after Christ, in prayer, meditation, mourning, reading and hearing the word, and all the ordinances of divine worship, private and public, in diligent obedience, until we find him. Christian, don't just say to your heart, as Eli said to his sons, why do you do such things? Seek Christ. Take all the means at your your disposal that he has given you. And in time, he will enlighten the eyes of your heart more. He will shine more light upon your heart. You will behold more and more of his glory. And those idols will appear as they truly are as dung. It's rubbish. He will grant that. That's what he promises to do. Therefore, let us mortify our idols, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for for you. Lord, you're so beyond description. You're so amazing. We thank you that though we were all at one times, at one time, pagans lost in postmodern idolatry, chasing various kinds of things, deserving nothing truly but your wrath, Lord. You redeemed us. You sent your Son, him who knew no sin. You poured out your wrath upon him that we might know you, that we might have fellowship with you, that by faith we might behold your beauty as revealed to us in your glorious Son. God, what more can we say to that? We pray that this week you'd help us to know more of that glory and to live lives that reflect our glorious Christ. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name.